We're going through this series uh, based upon Isaiah 40, 31, when Isaiah is writing to a group of people who will be in something called the Babylonian captivity or the Babylonian exile, when they will leave their native land of Israel, then be taken into the Babylon experience after they are conquered, and they're discouraged and beat down and forlorn. And in that context, Isaiah writes the following, it's Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait upon the Lord, wait means to look with expectation and joy and hope. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so I'm suggesting to you there are habits of grace, habits of devotional attitudes that place us in the path where Christ is walking, where he can bless us. They don't automatically bring it, but they pass, put us in the path where Jesus is walking. The last two weeks, I've talked about the authority of the Scripture as not only a truth, but also as something that we take into our lives because Psalm 1 says that we delight in it. We delight in the truth so much we meditate on the Bible. And as we meditate on God's truth, the psalmist says, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers. What a promise. So planted by the streams, the stream we know represents Jesus from John chapter 7. Anyway, we talked about the Bible. So this week, we'll talk to you about another habit of grace, which is developing and embracing spiritual friendships or relationships or fellowship. And we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. The passage is in your sermon guide, so hear the scripture from 1 John chapter 1, a, a book written to the early church where John is addressing a number of issues that bedeviled the church. But the, the theme of 1 John really is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, doing the right thing, believing the right thing so you can live with hope. So we're going to hit some of the high points in the first 10 verses. Hear the word of the Lord, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of God. So it's a passage about fellowship, about fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and with one another. And, and, and yet he spends the opening statement underscoring the greatness of who the living God is in the person of Christ. He, he says that, he says that there, there's a group of people in the early church's era that said, surely God did not become a real man. He just appeared to be a man. They were called docetists. And he says he didn't really have a, a body. He just appeared to have a body. And John thunders out of the gate. He says, we have touched him with our hands. There's another group that said that he really was a created being. He doesn't have an eternal nature. He says in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, that which was with the Father from the beginning. So he's addressing all of these errors by pointing to the supremacy and greatness of Christ. And then he says in chapter 2, two things. He says, I write these things to you so that you won't sin, but if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. We have a defense attorney with the Father. His name is Jesus. And he is our, verse 2, our propitiation. He covers us. He covers our sin by his work upon the cross. So he, he's, he's all about, behold, the glory and goodness and majesty of Christ. Leland Brown is in charge of our small group network here, and I asked Leland to give me a definition for fellowship. And this is what he gave me. It's very good. He says, fellowship is friendship rooted in Christian experience. Friendship rooted in Christian experience. J.I. Packer, in a little book called God's Word, says that fellowship is sharing in the common life in Christ. So, so John is just just chipping away with great energy, saying, behold the greatness of Christ. Now, now listen to this. True fellowship or friendship will occur when I am most aware of the glory of Jesus in my life. When I see the wonder of Jesus and I see his significance, and I live with hope and I'm rooted in him. So fellowship is, first of all, a relationship with God that spills out of us. So that's what John is trying to say. He says, so I'll write this to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, man and woman, Adam and Eve, fall into sin. And they hide from God. God comes into the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? And finally, Adam says, I'm over here. He says, why are you hiding? He says, well, Lord, we realize that we are naked and we hid ourselves. And it says they made for themselves coverings of fig leaves. And the Lord says to Adam, who told you you were naked? And he says, because of your sin, and he goes through chapter 3 and he says, this will happen, this will happen, and this will happen. But then he gives this glorious promise. He says, regarding the woman... A child born of the seed of the woman says the serpent will strike his heel, but that son will crush the head of the serpent. That happened on the cross. The first gospel promise, Genesis 3.15. And then something happens in the last part of Genesis 3. This filled with tenderness. 
God says, in essence, to Adam and Eve, fig leaves won't do. Fig leaves will never cover your shame, your guilt, and your sin. But I'll show you the only way to cover it. And God takes some animals, and he puts them to death, and he clothes them with the skin of animals, which for signifies the coming sacrificial system, and the sacrificial system given to the Jews is fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By his one sacrifice, he has made us whole forever. It was finished on the cross. But he's saying, fig leaves won't do. I will show you the only way, and that is through the shedding of blood. But here, here's the issue. We are in constant danger of forgetting the primacy of the shed blood and putting on fig leaves because we live in a fig leaf world which says, look at me. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. Look at where I live. See, we, are, we, we never have true fellowship if we're busy rearranging our fig leaves. If we're always constantly rearranging our fig leaves, brothers and sisters, we will never have true fellowship. That's what John is saying, that, that it's built upon the reality of Christ. Years ago, before the, obviously before the Soviet Union fell, there would be leaders of the Soviet Union dressed like this man. They would have medal after medal after medal running down their jacket, and they would stand on top of Lenin's mausoleum in Red Square in Moscow, and they would review the passing troops and the tanks and the aircraft, and, um, and, and these guys have coats on, but usually they'd stand there if it was at all warm, it usually was on, on May Day when they celebrated the most, but they would have row after row after row of ribbon. What they're saying is, this is who I am. This defines me. And... Uh, when I see that, I think about it as a young boy, very, very young boy, in our small church, there would be um, men who would, who would, it said, Bible read 1965. Next ribbon, Bible read 1966, 67, 68, 69, 70, and just goes down, down, down. How sick is that? I mean, think about it. I'm proud of having read the Bible every day in 1967. Look at me. How, how, how much more pharisaical can you get? It's like the Politburo. And I, but in reflection, I, th I think, you know, we do that. We, we rearrange our fig leaves. We say, look at me. I'm standing on Linden's Muslim. I've read the Bible, whatever. And, and this defines me as compared to the grace of the cross. The, the fig leaves of economic Accomplishment. I'm, I'm glad. I'm, if you're a military person and you've got these rooms, that's great. But it's so easy. Listen, it's so easy for instead of that saying, this is, this is a good thing to become, this is who I am. This is who I am. And, we're, and instead, of, instead of being clothed with the, the blood of, of, of the Lamb of God, we find ourselves rearranging our fig leaves. It happens all the time. You struggle with that. With this economic success, this is who I am. I made money. Athleticism. I'm, I'm a good athlete. Academics. What you possess, where you live, what you drive. Fig leaves or fig leaves. Looks. Just, just let me tell you this. Um, I thought about this this week. I, um, so, sometimes we'll watch a movie. Sarah and I watch a movie or a TV show. And, and we'll say, man, that's a very good looking person. Male or female. And, and I'm, I, but I remember that there's a lot you can do with makeup and lighting. 
you know, almost everybody has touch-up artists that make them look better than they are. But when you are in public, and this happens to be occasionally, not very often, you're in public and you see somebody, male or female, and they are just drop-dead gorgeous, good-looking. I've never done this. When I get a little bit older, I think I can get away with this. I want to walk into him and say, is it difficult to be humble and be as good-looking as you are? It is amazing. Amazing. After this first service, one of our elders said, it is tough, but I've overcome it. <laughs> and he's 6'7 and bald, and he doesn't really do it, you know. Anyway, that's beside the point. But it, it's, we, we are all the time rearranging our fig leaves, our status, our children. We recently have been, last few months, been reading about this cheating scandal. And people are in prison because they cheated to get their kids in prison. Excuse me, in, well... <laughs> That was a slip of the tongue. In, in elite schools, there's an article this week in, in the Wall Street Journal, and there's a headmaster of an elite school in Los Angeles, a prep school named Harvard Westlake School. He said the parents often, quote, had no faith in their children's resilience, close quote. The kids generally survived rejection for, from their dream schools better than their parents, he said. And then they interviewed a man who's now in prison serving five years, who's a billionaire wine grower, whose first name is uh, Augustine, who named his daughter Augustina. There may be a problem there from the get-go. And he pleaded guilty to paying $50,000 to fix his daughter's SAT scores. And 50000 helped her slide into the University of Southern California and he also agreed to pay an additional $200,000 on her acceptance before authorities exposed the plot. So $300,000 to get her into Southern California. And then he said this. He said, I, think I, said, I realized, and I realize now, that cheating on her behalf was not about helping her. It was about how, I, how it would make me feel or look. That's a fig leaf. I want my child to go to this elite school so that I will look at That's a fig leaf. And he's, he's just rearranging his fig leaf. And we struggle with that. I, I mean, see, see, the, reason I think, the reason I think John is, is laboring in this passage about the glory of Christ, his eternal nature, his He's fully God and fully man, that he's the covering for our sin. He's our advocate before the throne of grace. Because as he goes through all this, listen, you are at your best as a spouse, as a parent, as a friend, as, 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 as a child, a son or daughter, when you're saturated with the greatness and glory of Christ in such a fashion that you're swallowed up in Him and you're not concerned about yourself. You're at your very best. See, that, that, that's what he's saying. He said, if you want to be, if you want to have great spiritual friendship in the body of Christ with the people of God, then you be swallowed up with the greatness of Christ. There is a book that I've given out for years. I don't do it as much as I used to. It's called His Needs, Her Needs. The guy that wrote it's a Christian, but he's writing to a secular audience. There's, there's no Jesus in it at all. But it's a, it's a sociological book about what you do to have a good marriage. He talks about the five needs of a woman, the five needs of a man. And it's, it's a very self, 
It's a self-indictment in that the five needs of a man are all centered on himself. And the five needs of a woman are all about her family. So let me just tell you real quick. The five needs of the woman are affection, communication, openness, family support, and financial commitment. It's all about the family. The five needs of a man. (laughs) It's kind of sad. Sexual fulfillment. An attractive spouse, a recreational companionship who do fun things with you, someone who will admire you, and somebody who gives you domestic tranquility, somebody who keeps the home orderly and worships you. That's what we want, okay? So, so it's, it's really, but what you, you give that book to somebody, and you say, you say to, the, to the man, now I want you to read what your wife needs, and then think about how you can improve so the wife, what happens, the husband starts reading it, and he goes, well, this is pretty boring. Let's turn over to her section. And so he starts reading what she needs to do for him. And he says, does that okay? Is that okay? Not, not, not. Boom. So you use it as a bludgeoning tool. Let me tell you, this is the best marriage book I know. Because this book tells me to, to walk in tenderness and forgiveness. This book tells me as a husband to love Sarah like Jesus loves the church. This tells me to be approachable and kind and to be quick to extend forgiveness and quick to ask forgiveness. You do those things, your marriage will will thrive under the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I need. So I, I am at my best as a husband when I'm saturated with Jesus. And that's what John is saying here. If, if you really want to do this, you saturate yourself with the greatness of Christ. You saturate yourself with the gospel and all the gospel is for you. And as he says that, he mentions two areas. And that's what we're going to cover two things this morning that deal with fellowship. He says, as you walk in this way, he says, there, there's one group, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. Verse 7. But if we continuously walk in the light, and it's a present tense word. If we continuously walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, continuously cleanses us from all sin. So what he's saying, he says that there's some people. There's some people out there, he says, and, and, and they're going around saying, We're walking in, the, we have great fellowship with God. This is, they're walking in darkness. They're, they're walking in known, unrepentant disobedience. And he says, when you walk in known, unrepentant disobedience and you claim to have fellowship with God, he says, you lie. And you don't practice the truth. You lie. And that kills. You cannot have fellowship with people as you should. If you're walking in known, unrepentant disobedience. I've been doing this a long time. I'll see people. How are you doing? Great. Two months later, we find out they're having an affair. Walking in known, unrepentant sin. How are you doing? Great. Find out later that they're, they've been a closet alcoholic for four years. How are you doing? Great. When at home, we find out years later, they've been abusive and uncaring, especially verbally to their kids. 
And their whole world implodes because they have secret sins that are unconfessed and unforsaken. See, if, if we claim to have fellowship with the living God and we walk in darkness, known unrepentant sin, we lie. It's a lie. You can't. You can't do it. So I, th- I think of the life of David. David, if you snapshot of his life, David had, had two periods early in his life and late in his life where he was desperately in, the, in, in depression. The, the first happened early. David is a champion. He's killed Goliath. He's, he's, he's a mighty warrior. They sing about him in the streets of Jerusalem. And the king is Saul. He, his best friend, his bosom buddy is Saul's son, Jonathan. David marries Saul's daughter after he does this wild bridal experience of, here's, I'll do this if I can marry your daughter, and he does it two times over. Don't need to get into that, but he does it. And then all of a sudden, Saul turns against him, and Saul tries to kill him. Saul hires some thugs to, to hunt him down and put him to death, and David says, what is going on? And finds out that David has to flee from King Saul. He has to flee from his best friend, flee from his wife, flee from the comforts of his friends, and he lives in the desert, and he's depressed. And then late in his life, he's been the king for decades, and he has this incredibly gifted and handsome son named Absalom. And Absalom was embittered toward his dad, and he won the hearts of the people of Israel in such a fashion that he tried to usurp his his dad's authority. His dad had to flee at night to leave the city. He has people throwing rocks at him and cursing him, and he's the king of Israel. And he has to live in the desert once again until the kingdom is restored and his son is killed. It's a horrible time. But those two episodes, as deep and depressive as they are, cannot compare to Psalm 32. David penned Psalm 32 in the aftermath of a seedy experience that you've heard about. He's been a Christian very long. David is the king. He goes out one day when he should have been at battle. He's become lazy and lethargic, and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. He lusts after her beauty. He brings her into his house. They have intimacy. She becomes pregnant. Her husband is in the field. He brings the husband back. Basically, he has her husband murdered, and he takes Bathsheba into his house magnanimously and says, she is my wife. And so here's a guy that has this drop-dead gorgeous woman as his, as his wife who's carrying his baby. He's eating five-star meals three times a day. He's living in a palatial palace. He's got the world in his hip pocket. And his depression now is severely more than what he had when he was hunted by Saul or his son. And he writes Psalm 32. This is what he says. He starts off with the end of the matter. Happy, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy or blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he gives this biographical statement. When I was silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. 
Selah. Think about it. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, and I said, I will confess my transgressions to Jehovah, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But David said, I went through this time where, where, where I was in the palace, and I, was, I had everything going for me, and, and yet day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and I groaned all the day long. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I've experienced that, where you're, there's sin in your life and you're kind of playing with it and you're not forsaking it, and, and it, it's miserable, and you have to. You have to. You see, when you become a follower of Jesus, He gives you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will, ne- will not let you walk in known, unrepentant, unforsaken sin without making your life miserable. So if you're sitting here this morning in the worship center and you're saying, you know, I, I am, I, I've been doing this and I am miserable, that's a good sign. If you're, if you're going down this path and you say there's no big deal, sin's no big deal, that's a bad sign. That's a sign you're not a believer, quite frankly. But if you say as a believer, I, I, God's hand is heavy upon me. And church, it doesn't have to be adultery and murder. It can, it can be an unforgiving spirit. It can be withholding the affection that someone is due in your home. It can be pride or arrogance that puts other people down while you puff yourself up. It can be being consumed by the accumulation of stuff in such a fashion that it's a strangle in your life. Those are sinful attitudes. And, and, and God puts his hand on you. So, so if, if you say, I'm walking in the light, everything's great, and you know you're not, you can't have fellowship with people. You really can't have much fellowship with God until you confess and repent. I was thinking about this and I was thinking about Matthew 18 where Jesus, you know, the disciples asked Jesus some really crazy questions. So Matthew 18, his disciples are there and say, Lord, can we ask you a question? Sure. He said, who among us is the greatest? No, I can't fathom asking Jesus that. <laughs> wow. And it says, Jesus took a child. And he put the child in their midst, and he said this. Unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives uh, this child receives me. But if you make this child stumble, it's better if you'd have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. Strong. In other words, If you really want to be known of God, then be like a little child. Sing and dance and be happy. Don't be caught up with yourself. And then the very next breath, he says this. He goes from that to such a stern statement. He says, says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And of course, he's speaking metaphorically. Well, what he's saying is be serious about sin. Be serious about those things that wear you down and weigh you down and just take away your joy. I, I was reading an article recently about a guy named Lance Morrow, and he was, the title of the, of the song 
excuse me, the title of the article was, What Do You Sing When No One Is Listening? Why do you sing when no one is listening? He said something very embarrassing happened to him. He said he was on a platform waiting to go into work. He worked at Time Magazine for years. And he said it was the middle of the day. There was nobody there, I thought. And so I said, I love to sing. So I started singing a dippy little love song. And uh, so I sang it. And uh, as soon as I finished, a lady came up, stood next to me, started clapping. He said, I was traumatized. And I, and I thought to myself, well, what, what do I sing when no one is listening? Do I sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do I sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Do I sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. What do we sing when no one is listening? What's the song of your heart? So the, the issue here is, is, is not do Christians sin. Listen, we all sin. That's the next point. But we all fall. We stumble. We scrape our knees. We have bad attitudes. We deal with unforgiveness. But, but the issue is we don't stay there. You hear me? We don't stay there. This is the picture I want to show you. This is... This is Muhammad Ali. And the guy standing behind him is a guy named Smoking Joe Frazier. If you're old enough to remember, Smoking Joe from Beaufort, South Carolina, was world heavyweight champion during Ali's prime. They went back and forth. And Smoking Joe had a left hook that would knock you into the next century. He was a powerful fighter. And this is a picture of fighting, and Smoking Joe has just decked Muhammad Ali. I mean, he hit him with a, a left hook, and he's staggering. But look at the champion, though. He's, he's getting up. He's getting up. To me, that's a picture of, of a believer. We're going to get knocked down, but we get up. So, point one. Point two. There are, there's another group saying this. They said, you know, there's another group going around saying, we, we, uh, we have no sin. Verse 8, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar and his word is not in us. He says, but if you run around saying, I have no sin, I've got it all together. He says, you're self-deceived. You're self-deceived and you're not walking in the truth. The truth is not in us. So you're just self-deceived. It says, conversely, verse 9, if, if we confess our sins, continue to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So because I sin and because I'm sinful, I can be easily self-deceived. Therefore, I need brothers and sisters who will help me by their example, by teaching me, and by correction. It's interesting. The Westminster Confession of Faith has this little statement. I've never heard anyone preach on this. I've never read an article on this, and I really wish somebody would. 
Chapter 15, Article 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1647, okay, says this. Men ought not to contend themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. Now, you go to churches, let's confess our sins, or we confess to you that we're sinners in need of your forgiveness. Amen, amen. But this says that it's a good exercise to sit down and to confess our particular sins particularly. I'm going, is that good or bad? I don't know. But I'm thinking about that. And there is a, a wonderful book by a guy named John Stott entitled Confess Your Sins. And he argues in that book that there's a great benefit in the daily confession of our sins to clear away any rubbish between us and the throne of God. I mean, if, if I have unconfessed, undealt with sins, it's easy for the flow of the river of God from the throne of grace, whatever you want to say, to be stopped up. So the question is, am, am, I, am I confessing my sins? Am I dealing with these things? So based upon this, I've just given five quick points. They're in the worship guide. I'll give them to you. Number one, fellowship with God is the source from which fellowship among Christians springs. You walk with the Lord you love people. Number two, God in Trinitarian kindness has made us as relational people because we are made in the image of God. Now listen, God has always been in a holy fellowship of Trinitarian embrace, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's amazing. We are made in His image. Therefore, we are made in part for relationship, for spiritual friendships. You can't read the New Testament and not get that fully. Thirdly, the Father has given us the church as a means of building, encouraging, sustaining, equipping his people. Fourthly, the above is accomplished in large part through relationships that share in the mutual life that flows from the Trinitarian understanding of God. Five, hear this. Believers who do not diligently avail themselves of this sharing of the common life in Christ severely limit a primary means of growth and grace in the knowledge of Christ. Therefore, we should find ourselves in webs of relationships that are centered on the reality of Christ, i.e., be involved in a small group where you can give and receive. We have community groups, we have men's groups, women's groups, where you give and receive, where you listen, you pray for each other. I'll give you, I'm going to do this, I just thought about this this morning. We love our community group. We meet on Wednesday nights. It's a wonderful group of young, they let us hang out with them. They're young people. And uh, we have a meal together, which is unusual. But somebody says, I'll cook every week. And I says, I can eat every week. So that's what we do. So someone cooks every week and I get to eat every week. It's good food. And uh, this past week we met, we sat around the table. We played, asked, we answered a couple of 
questions, get to know each other better. We looked at Psalm 1. We prayed through Psalm 1. We talked about applications regarding technology and Psalm 1. And we spent time together. And as we left, I was, just, I was rejoicing. It's, no, it's, not, it's nothing. It's just that we were together. And I left saying, there's a guy here who's in a lawsuit. I need to pray for him. There's a young woman who's going to have a baby, a young woman who's going to have a baby. And there is another person there who's looking for a, a, maybe a job change to give them more time with their family. That's what I've been praying for, just a community group. But it's, it's a give and take. It, it's, it's what we do. I, I, I love it because I think we're made for that. So get in a community group. Get in a small group. You can sign up on the, on the Internet. You can get some information at the visitor's desks because we're made for each other. Now, let me take you back to an illustration from the Olympics. Barcelona, 1992, the Summer Olympics. There was a man named Derek Redman who had won the first two heats and the 400-meter dash, one, one lap around the track. And in the semifinals, to qualify for the finals, he was, he was favored to win a silver or a gold. He was a record holder from Great Britain. And Derek Redman, uh, he said he won the first two heats without even breaking into a sweat. He just kind of breezed through. And this was going to be more difficult, so he started off like a rocket. If you watched it, Google it, he's, he's leading the pack. At about 150 meters in the 400 meters, uh, he said he, he felt a pop. And then a nanosecond later, the most excruciating pain he's ever felt hit behind his right knee. He, he blew out his hamstring. And he, he crumbled to the ground, weeping profusely. It hurt so badly. And he thought back to four years before. He was sick and he couldn't run. And he had, did not qualify on his record his Olympic record, he said, I did not want to have, did not finish on my Olympic record this time around. So he said, I got up, and in all the pain, I was determined to finish. He had, he had 100, 200 meters to go or, or more. And so he's, he's hobbling, weeping around the track, and, and, if you, and, and you look up, and, and there's this, this big guy that comes charging out of the stands wearing a baseball hat. And there are these little Spanish guys. They were wearing green coats with, with, with gold ties. And they come running up to him to, to get him to stop. And he takes his forearm and he throws them off. And he, if you're a lip reader, I think he says a couple of expletives. And then he says, this is my son. And so this dad goes running up to his son, this son that he's been with every step of the way in his Olympic journeys, his athletic journeys, and he says to his son, son, you don't have to do this. And the son says, but dad, I've got to finish. And the dad puts his arm around him and he says, <clears throat> he says, okay, we started this thing together and we will finish it together. And then later, Derek said that his dad kept saying over and over again as they finished the race, he says, you're a champion, son. You're a champion. And they finished the race. One of the greatest moments, I think, in Olympic history. 
when I, when I think about that, I think, first of all, wow. But I thought about the times in my life when people have done that for me without even knowing it, just by their example, by their prayer, by their encouragement. And I, I say, I want to be that type of person. We need each other. Sometimes in our walk, we're going to be like the guy lying in a track with a blown hamstring. And it's great to have someone come up behind you, stand beside you and say, let's finish this together. That's what the body of Christ is. So brothers and sisters, understand that fellowship in the Lord is a great means of sustaining and building us and extending the kingdom. We, we do something. I haven't, I've done a very poor job of explaining it. At the end of our services here and in the worship center, we have people standing up front who just want to pray with you if you want to pray. Prayer is a great means of encouragement and sustaining each other. Um, and it's, the Father delights in His children bringing requests to Him. In the early, before the first service, I was walking around. I went to the worship center and I, I saw a young woman who's, um, who's going to have a baby tomorrow. They're going to induce labor tomorrow. And she'd call me and told me that. So I just prayed for her. And she, it was just a joy. And then I looked over to my right and there sat a woman whose son has been struggling with cancer as a young man for five years now and he's not doing well and he's one of the finest guys I've ever known three kids and I just prayed for her and I was walking out I saw a woman sitting there who last week buried her son because of suicide and I thought thanks be to God for the body of Christ you know they rejoice they pray they weep they pray they walk beside us in the joys they walk beside us in the sorrows you have been that to me to my wife and my kids and I thank you for that I want, that to, I want us to be that to each other. So please hear me. This is a means by which the Lord builds us up. So let's pray for each other. And let's ask God to strengthen us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, brothers and sisters who have walked consistently and loved fearlessly. And I think of people all around us who don't understand the gospel and, and they desperately need the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, I pray we'd be a welcoming community to people who are outside of the understanding of the gospel. And as they see the beauty of relationship, that there would be, that there would, there would strike a chord in their heart of authenticity and truth and that you would use us, Lord. I, I pray that Everyone here would purpose in their heart. Every person who knows Jesus would purpose in their heart to walk beside people who are hurting. Or if people here who know Jesus are hurting, that they would understand there are people here who walk beside them. Lord, 
it, it goes back and forth. So do that in us and teach us, we pray. And please make us sensitive to each other and sensitive to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.